Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Dr. Henry Manka. CEO of uh, Posit Science. And the website is www.brainhq.com. Dr. Manka, how are you doing? I'm doing great today, Rich. How are you doing? Good. A little bit. I just had a coffee, so I'm a little bit sped up, but I'm okay. <laughs> so, so thanks, Rich. <laughs> well, you know, ca- caffeine is one of the oldest cognitive enhancers, so you're uh, you're on the right track. <laughs> yeah, so, so on that subject, you know, if you would, just introduce yourself and tell folks, uh, you know, what your company does. Sure. So uh, my name is Henry Monka, and uh, I'm a neuroscientist by training. I did a PhD in neuroscience at UC San Francisco, where I studied um, brain plasticity, how the brain reorganizes itself through learning and how it changes structurally, functionally, and, chemi- and chemically. And uh, I uh, came to work at Posit Science, and I'm now the CEO. And what we do at Posit Science is we apply those basic, they apply that basic science of brain plasticity to build real-world brain exercises that just about anyone can use to uh, improve their cognitive function. And what makes us unique in this field, where there's tons and tons of brain games and brain exercises and all kinds of stuff out there, is we actually did the clinical trials to really show that this approach works. And uh, now we're taking this forward to help all kinds of people. Yeah, that's great. I remember for a while, it was really heavily advertised. There was um, Luminosity or Lumosity or something like that. And they had brain games, but they had actually yeah. legal trouble from what I've heard because I think they promised too much. Uh, I guess the FTC or some regulatory body thought that they promised too much about what their brain games would do. Yeah, you know, this field is, uh, you know, it's an interesting one because the promise of the science is so big. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we fundamentally understand that the brain is plastic, if it's capable of change uh, as an adult, as an older adult, or as a person with a neurological or psychiatric condition, and we can bring what basic science shows us to bear about how to change that brain, how to rewire it, you know, we can probably do an awful lot to help an awful lot of people. At the same time, from a commercial perspective, you know, this field has just been the Wild West over the past, uh, you know, five to 10 years where anyone could make anything and say, hey, this engages your attention. So I guess it's a brain game and it improves your attention. And for quite some time, there was no one saying no to that. And the FTC finally did take action uh, somewhat more than a year ago. And, um, you know, put a hefty fines to quite a number of companies where their marketing uh, just wasn't backed up by their science. And that's great because if we're going to achieve the promise of this field, you know, it has to be built on a, on a solid scientific foundation. People have to know what works and what doesn't and who can who can be helped and what, what these programs actually do. Yeah, so tell me about what you guys have at Posit. What kind of brain games and you know, how does it relate to plasticity? What what are people yeah. doing in the games? So, uh, so we came out of we spun out of the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, where I did my PhD, and we were founded by a legendary neuroscientist named uh, Michael Mersnick. And what uh, what Mike is really known for, uh, really all around the world, is uh, his discovery in the 70s and 80s and 90s that uh, that the adult brain was plastic, and and, and to understand how that influenced us and what we build. You know, we got to turn the clock back a bit. So if you turn the clock back to 1970, let's say. 
and you ask leading neuroscientists, you know, how does the brain work? Every one of them would have said, well, the brain's like a computer chip that's inside your head, right? It's got all these wires and they all talk to each other and, you know, computation happens and, you know, then we can see and we can think and we can act. Um, but one interesting aspect of that metaphor is it kind of suggests that um, that wiring is fixed. And maybe even worse, it suggests that, you know, that wiring might wear out as we get old, right? Everyone's familiar with their computer getting older and not working as well. And everyone's probably also familiar that if you drop your computer and break that chip, well, you know, it doesn't get better. You get a new computer. And so that led to a viewpoint around brain function that suggests that, well, because the brain was like a, a computer with fixed wiring, that it wore out over time as we got old. And if it got broken by a head injury or by a neurological illness, then it probably couldn't be fixed. And what uh, what Mike did at UCSF and his students and then really collaborators all around the world is, is just show that that wasn't true, that, that that metaphor just isn't the case. And the right way to think about the brain is, hey, it's a complex, organic, you know, biological system. And in fact, it's constantly adapting itself and rebuilding itself in response to what we ask it to do. You know, the goal of the brain is always to have the most efficient, most useful information processing system given everything we've asked it to do over its history. And, you know, if we think about it that way, that leads us to a very different viewpoint around aging and around neurological and, and psychiatric illness, which is that, well, if we ask the brain to do the right things, well, maybe we can get it to <laughs> optimize its function in a helpful direction. So when we started building brain exercises, we came at it from a very, uh, you know, what you might call neurologically inspired viewpoint. And uh, that was different from what people have been doing historically. There's a huge field of cognitive training out there. It really comes from helping brain-injured patients and so forth. And a lot of that's focused very much on, like, skill training. Like, hey, how could I keep a calendar so I can remember where I'm supposed to go? Or how can I keep a memory notebook to write things down that I need to remember? And those are great strategies for people who've had a significant injury, but they don't really fix maybe quite what's going on in the brain. And so because we had a very different idea about what was going on in the brain, we built very different solutions than what had been done before. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I know a um, a former NFL player, and you know, unfortunately from getting hit so much that uh, he has to write everything down and, you know, he feels like he has a lot of memory lapses, especially forming long-term memories. So this is going to be really interesting and helpful. So tell me more about uh, what you guys do and what solution you come up with. Yeah. So when we started to build, and I, I want to come back to the NFL at some point, it's a super interesting topic right now. Uh, you know, when we started building these exercises, you know, we came from the viewpoint that um, that at its core, most of these cognitive deficits, whether they were aging or other kinds of neurological or psychiatric conditions, you know, you could trace them to um, to how fast and accurately the brain was processing information. And then in most of these cases, the brain wasn't processing information quickly and accurately. And so we built exercises, we've built actually more than 29 different exercises at this point, covering all kinds of cognitive functions and vision and hearing. But at their core, they're all trying to achieve a somewhat similar goal, which is to make brain information processing faster and more accurate. And, uh, you know, here's a little trick we can do ourselves. And, and this is an audio podcast, so, so this will be fun. Uh, if you put your, uh, you can put your fingers on your voice box, right, right on your throat. And you make a sound like ba, B-A, ba. Ba, ba. Do that a couple times. Ba, okay. Ba, ba, what you can notice is that when your lips open, ba, your voice box starts to vibrate at really just about the same time. Ba, ba. Hmm. Now let's make a different sound. Let's make a pa sound, like uh, like papa. Pa, pa. If you do that carefully, you can feel. 
you do that carefully, right. and as you've done, you can actually feel that your lips open just a little bit before your voice box starts to vibrate. And in fact, uh, this is a whole aspect of academic research, because of course everything's an aspect of academic research somewhere. And people who study this are phonologists, and uh, what they've shown very carefully is that, um, hey, that gap in a pa sound is about 40 milliseconds between when your lip opens and when your voice box starts to vibrate. It's called a voice onset time, for what it's worth. And in fact, the difference between a ba and a pa is really mostly that 40 millisecond gap. And you can change a ba into a pa by inserting that gap. And that gets interesting because when we look at human speech perception, it turns out there's a ton of information that's occurring very quickly in that kind of tens of milliseconds time frame. And in fact, one of the things that happens as we get older is that because our brains start to start to slow down and process information less accurately in time, we get less good at distinguishing or, or discriminating those short pieces of time. And so as we get older, bas sound more like pas. And what that means is when we get older, it gets harder to hear, for example, in noisy restaurants or with a lot of background noise. And that's got nothing to do with the ear, right? We all know that we lose high-frequency hearing as we get older. But this is a problem in the brain, the part of the brain that processes speech. And so this is why older people often say, hey, when, they, when I go out to a restaurant, for example, hey, I can't hear well. There's too much background noise. And that unto itself leads to memory problems. So if you have to devote more cognitive resources to hearing because your processing speed is worse and you're not really hearing the details of speech very accurately, well, you have less resources, one might say, available for memory storage. And in fact, that's been shown very clearly. If you take a young person and an old person and you read each of them a list of, let's say, 15 words, well, you know, typically the old person is going to remember fewer words than the young person, right? We know this happens as we get older. But you can make a young person have the memory of an old person very easily. All you do is you read those lists of 15 words in a noisy environment. The young person has to work more carefully to hear the speech, less resources available for memory, and they'll remember fewer words. So, in fact, we might think about the brain of an older person as operating with internal noise in the same way that we can add mm -hmm. external noise to a young person or worsen their memory. So, with all well, that understanding, yeah. some young people don't listen, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a whole other side of this that has to do with attention. And in fact, right, young right. people have often got better things to do than listen to old people. That's that's my experience with my teenager anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. So, so when okay, we build brain exercise... Oh, no, no, please. Um, so when we started building brain exercises, you know, we wanted to speed people up and make it more accurate. So we, uh, one of the first exercises we built was actually an exercise that works on exactly those little gaps in speech. And you hear little sounds, and then there's a gap, and then there's a noise. And you have to listen for what the sound is and, and identify what it is, for example. And as you get better at it, it gets faster. And as if you have a few bad days, then it gets easier. So it always homes in to kind of exactly what your perceptual abilities are. But as you practice that over and over again, you know, your brain starts to change. It starts to realize, oh, hearing these little bits of sound is important. I better get better at it. And we literally rewire the brain, make the auditory system faster and more accurate. And in doing so, clinical trials actually done at uh, Northwestern, for example, by Nina Krauss, showed that people's speech reception gets better and more accurate in noisy environments. And then as a result of that, other clinical trials done at Mayo and USC showed that their memory gets better. And so we think what we're doing is kind of reaching in and really taking an older brain and, and by making it faster and more accurate, improve people's memory and their cognitive functions. But in this very kind of bottom up, kind of fix the, the wet machinery of the brain and what it's doing kind of way. When you say older brain, what's older? And what <laughs> well, there's beautiful work done by uh, Tim Salthouse at the University of Virginia that suggests that we're at our cognitive peak at 27. 
<laughs> every year after that is a, a year that starts to take us downhill. So I, I don't know about you, Rich, but I'm a little past 27 myself. And, yeah, I'm 42 uh, and, now. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, there you go. I'm 47. So, uh, so we're probably right. all a little bit past our peak. But mm-hmm. um, where it gets even more interesting is that when we founded the company – you know, we said, hey, we're going to build these brain exercises. And when Mike Mersnick recruited me to the company, he told me we're going to build these brain exercises and, um, you know, adapted for various different specific needs. We're probably going to be able to help virtually everyone on the planet. And, of course, I thought, well, that's a pretty good goal, but um, I don't know. <laughs> Let's see how far we get. Uh, and uh, when we started the company, we focused, of course, on uh, on improving cognitive function in older people because we, we looked at it and said, well, hey, everybody gets old. That's probably a good place to start. Right. But something pretty interesting started to happen, which is that as we launched these brain exercises, well, all kinds of people started to use them. And we asked people how old they are. And, you know, we find people in their, you know, in their early 20s, for example, who are using the exercises. And, of course, all the way up to people in their late 90s. And uh, we started to collect a ton of data, and we can sort it by age. And one of the most interesting things that came out of this is that when our researchers looked at this huge body of real-world data from people using these cognitive training exercises, it was clear that the magnitude of improvement we could see on speed and on accuracy and on memory was, in fact, just about equivalent, just about equal in people younger and people older. Of course, people who are older tended to start off somewhat worse than people who are younger, but the improvements in younger people were often equally as large. And at first, I was shocked by that, right? Because, you know, we kind of have yeah. this, you know, very stereotyped way of thinking about aging, right? I'm, I'm perfect when I'm young, and then I start to kind of fall off this cliff. But that's not really true, right? Really, what happens is there's a lot of variability at almost every age. And there's more variability as we get older. The bottom end gets a bit worse, so to speak. But even when we're young, there's a ton of variability. And in fact, it's become clear that the right way to think about this is much more like physical exercise. And what I mean by that is that, you know, frankly, just about everyone can benefit from physical exercise, right? If you're sedentary and you're obese and you have high cholesterol, well, of course, you're going to benefit from physical exercise. That's going to help. But uh, take someone like uh, Tom Brady, right? New England quarterback. Uh, he's at the pretty much the peak of physical performance. And, and what does he do? Well, he exercises every day because that's how he stays that way, right? That's how he stays that right. way and gets even better. And what the data is showing us is that the right kind of brain exercise probably works that way also, is that no matter where you start, whether you're at the first percentile or the median or whether you're at the top 95th percentile, you know, if you do the right kinds of brain exercises, you can push yourself to be better than where you started. And that's that's kind of a pretty interesting development <laughs> and was, again, certainly shocking to me as a neuroscientist that that was the right way to think about it. But that's pretty yeah. clear that's exactly the right way to think about it now. That's great news, though. I mean, that's really great. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Because what it means is that, you know, we don't need to think of this as something that's, you know, only for you if you've already you know, kind of falling off a cliff or as my dad put it when the company was founded, is this for you if you've lost your marbles? And the answer is no. Um, You know, just like going to the gym, this is something that anyone who wants to be sensible about brain health should be doing to take care of themselves and make themselves better. And of course, I mentioned Tom Brady because, you know, as you may have heard the news around the Super Bowl, it turned out he was a Brain HQ user. And he used Brain HQ because he wanted to be uh, at the top of his game, fast and accurate with his visual system. In fact, the story behind that is that a couple summers ago, we got a call out of the blue from his personal trainer who said, hey, Tom Brady's using Brain HQ. And of course, you could have knocked me over with a feather. That was not, not a call I was ever expecting to get. 
Um, but, right. you know, we uh, flew out to Foxborough and talked to him and his trainer. And, um, you know, it's amazing. Sometimes when you talk to uh, people who use something you've invented, you learn something about what you invented you didn't know before. And, oh, definitely, uh, yeah. Anything you learned that you didn't know? Uh, yeah. What I learned uh, when we talked to Tom is that, um, you know, hey, he says, uh, you know, I get the ball and I got about three and a half seconds on the average before uh, before uh, I'm going to get uh, going to get sacked. And in that three sure. and a half seconds, you know, I've got to, you know, look at as many as four or five different potential receivers. And I got to make a quick, correct executive decision around which one I should hit. And of course, all of this is influenced by what play we're actually running. And we typically have hundreds of plays that we've picked from. So I need to be as fast, as accurate as possible. And when I've done these visual training exercises, and he did ones that focused on visual speed and accuracy. And, and help the peripheral vision in particular be as fast and accurate as possible. So, you know, I can see those folks better and faster, and I make that decision faster, and I make it more correctly. So that was cool. And again, just came back to that notion of, um, hey, we can probably help anyone's brain be uh, be sharper and more accurate with these kinds of tools. Makes sense. Well, how much improvement are you seeing on average, or, you know, what's the distribution look like, and how do you quantify it? Well, there's uh, there's lots of different ways. So, um, you know, when we when I think about this as a scientist, you know, usually what we say at first is, well, hey, how much better do you just get better at the exercises? And you should get better at the exercises, right? If you practice something, you should get better at exactly that, whether it's a speed of processing exercise on a computer or whether it's French or the piano or juggling. And in fact, when we look at those measures, if we look at how much faster do people get at the speed of processing exercises themselves, for example, we can see that people get um, more than twice as fast, typically. So a decision that might take you, uh, let's say, 150 milliseconds to make before you start training, you can, uh, you'll be making in 75 milliseconds or less after training. So we can make people a lot faster. But the big question, of course, isn't, hey, do people get better at what they practice at? Because they should. <laughs> The big question right. is, well, hey, does it generalize to real-world situations? And, of course, there, you know, we have individual people telling us that they've gotten better, like like Tom Brady did or like, you know, thousands of our customers have. But, of course, as scientists, we want to see that in clinical trials. And so when we do those clinical trials, we measure things that are different from what people trained at and ask, well, how much better do they get at those kinds of measures? And so, for example, uh, you know, one trial we ran with USC and with Mayo Clinic, we looked at memory scores in people who um, who did the training, and we measured their memory with the standard kinds of tests that a neurologist or a neuropsychologist would use, right? Read your right. list of 15 words five times and see how many you remember. And when we did those tests, what we saw is that people's memory improved by about 10 years. So people who were in their 60s, for example, after training had memory that was like people in their 50s. People in their 70s oh. after training had people like memory in their 60s. So that's a pretty solid change, right? If you ask most people in those age range, you know, would you like to have the memory that you had 10 years ago? <laughs> most people would raise their hands and say, yeah, yeah, over the past 10 years, I've noticed I'm not quite as sharp as I would. I'd like to turn the clock back in 10 years. And then we've looked at other measures as well. There was a, a beautiful study, uh, actually entirely independent from posit science, organized and funded by the National Institutes of Health, that used a processing speed exercise that's now part of Brain HQ. And what they showed is that um, uh, people who went through uh, actually just 10 hours of training or 10 to 18 hours of training on that uh, on that processing speed exercise actually had about a 50% reduction in the number of at-fault auto crashes they experienced over the next five years. 
So by oh. making people's visual system faster and more accurate, by helping them see more quickly, particularly in their peripheral vision, these folks stayed out of crashes um, uh, by, a, by an improvement yeah, of great. about 50%. Yeah, it's, uh, oh. it's fantastic. And it's a very real-world benefit. Uh, and in fact, yeah, uh, you know, we saw that in the trial, but, um, you know, we get emails from our customers. And one of the most amazing emails that, uh, that we ever got was a customer writing in who said, um, hey, positive science saved my life last night. I'm like, well, okay. I want to read that. That makes it worth coming into work today. And uh, a woman had written to us, and she had finished uh, this um, uh, this uh, visual training, uh, and it was actually offered by her auto insurance company, uh, AAA of Southern California, which makes this available to their uh, to their drivers. And said she had rolled up to an intersection, kind of in the evening, around dusk. And stopped, and uh, she was about to enter the intersection. And then, as she said, you know, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a truck coming, you know, perpendicular to me right. crosswise. And I saw that it wasn't going to stop. And I took my foot, uh, you know, my foot was off the brake and about on the accelerator, and I stepped back on the brake so I didn't enter the intersection. And that guy just blew through the stop sign. And, you know, I would have been in that intersection, but I saw that so fast. And that's exactly, you know, that is the real world translation of, hey, what does it mean to have a visual system that's sharper and faster? Well, you're going to see things like that faster and better. So, really cool. so the improvements are noticeable. Yeah, you know, it's kind of amazing, you know, to come out of a lab where you're doing all these basic experiments, rats and monkeys and stuff like this, and, and translate it into something that um, that can help people and people notice in their lives. Yeah, interesting. Are you trying to push the envelope and come up with more uh, games or, you know, trying to see how how far you can push it with people? Yeah, so we've built about 29 exercises so far, and I would say that the biggest ways we're trying to push the envelope right now is to figure out, well, how broad can the benefits be? How far can we can we help people? And on one dimension, it's looking at people who are, you know, at very good level and trying to be even better. So working with folks in professional sports, you know, I mentioned Tom Brady and other people like that, uh, working with uh, military organizations to say, hey, can we help, you know, soldiers who need to be at their best, to be at their absolutely best. So that's, that's one angle that's quite interesting to us. And then interestingly, the other angle that's quite interesting to us is really at the opposite end of the spectrum. So uh, again, there's beautiful data that was uh, shared last year at the American uh, that the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, which is a scientific conference that gets put every on every year by the Alzheimer's Association, and researchers there last year shared data showing um, that uh, that training on these kinds of exercises um, actually reduced the risk of going on to dementia by about 33% over the next 10 years. Wow! So a very huge. large study, yeah, almost 3,000 people in the study followed for 10 years. And um, showing that people who were, you know, started off as healthy adults, um, but, you know, at risk, of course, as we all are as we get older, you know, they lowered that uh, that risk of going on to dementia as a result of training. So, you know, we can, it's almost like a barbell, right? On the one end, I think one of the most interesting things is, well, how much can we push human performance to its maximum? And the other end is, well, how much can we, you know, can we use these tools to help people who are at risk of, uh, you know, kind of falling off that cliff as a yeah, result of yeah. dementia? And then, of course, we want to know, well, what's actually going on in the brain during all of this? So there's been some very interesting brain imaging studies that have come out now with uh, magnetic resonance imaging and, uh, and other techniques that, you know, just to go back to the basics, you know, we started off by saying, hey, we, you know, we believe we're changing the structure and the function of the chemistry of the brain. Um, you know, we can now, uh, you know, and our, and our university-based research partners now can, can actually, you know, do this quite beautifully now. 
there was a study came out last year from uh, from Becky Lynn at the University of Rochester, and she was looking at people who were at risk of Alzheimer's disease and put them through this kind of brain training. And she was able to use functional magnetic resonance imaging to actually show that the uh, the connectivity of the brain, you know, how different parts of the brain talk to each other, so to speak, um, was improved as a result of going through this brain training. And those connectivity changes are one of the things that are almost the hallmark of going on to severe cognitive decline. So just a just an initial study, lots more to do on that front. But it's, um, again, kind of amazing to be able to, you know, in that way, look directly into the brain and see what changes, you know, as we learn. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, how much practice is needed? And do you have any uh, teachers, pets that practice four or five, eight hours a day and what happens to them? <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, doing these exercises in Brain HQ, um, you know, the studies have typically been on 10 hours of training uh, or as many as 40 or sometimes more hours of training. And, you know, what we see is, again, to come back to, well, I'll use a different metaphor this time. You know, think about learning the piano. Uh, if you're learning the piano and, you know, you're going to make good progress if you practice 30 minutes or an hour every day, you know, four or five days a week. At the same time, if you practice more than that, well, you'll probably get better faster, right? If you're the kind of person who sits down and practices for, well, let's say two hours every day, you know, you're going to become a, a better pianist faster. And if you practice less than that, let's say you practice half an hour twice a week, well, you're still going to improve, but maybe not as quickly. Of course, there's some limits to that, right? If you are uh, like I was when I was a kid and I practiced trumpet, I would say once a month, you're not going to become a very good trumpet player. <laughs> I certainly didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, if you do it for uh, 10 hours at a run, well, there's probably some ceiling effect in there somewhere. Eventually, you're just getting tired. And in fact, we know this neurologically, right? There's sort of optimum windows to drive brain change. And so what we, uh, you know, what we usually like to see people do with Brain HQ is we like to see them, you know, well, the first thing is to just get started, right? Right? If you're not doing any brain exercises, well, let's start off with something that fits in your schedule, right? Can you do it twice a week for 30 minutes a day? And once that starts to be a habit, you know, we'd like to see that increase a little bit, just like a, just like a doctor might recommend increasing your physical exercise. But one thing that's pretty clear is you don't need to do it every day for the rest of your life. Um, you know, it's not like a drug where if you stop taking the drug, you know, it washes out of your system and your brain's just back to where it was before. You know, we see plenty of people start and they use it for a while and experience improvements. And then, you know what? They stop. Life gets in the way. They go on vacation. They get busy. And then they stop for a while. And then after a while, they come back. And uh, and that's a perfectly reasonable approach. And in fact, that's an approach that a lot, we see a lot in physical fitness as well, right? Really, most people don't go to the gym every single day. They go on kicks and they get in better shape and then they take a break for a while and then they're like, oh, okay, I need to get back to that and they get back to that. And, that, right. uh, and that's very reasonable. That being said, when we look in our database of real-world users, you know, you mentioned star pupils and, um, you know, I think I mentioned there were 29 exercises in Brain HQ. There's more than 800 different training levels across those exercises and we see a surprising number of users <laughs> on every one over and over again. So there are certainly people out there who get uh, very intense about this, just the way there are people out there who get very intense about CrossFit, for example, right? Or other things like that. Okay. Have you had any uh, superstars that uh, really got outsized results? Uh, Do you know why, <laughs> if so? You know, the uh, when we uh, we survey our customers and they come back and tell us, you know, stories about things that have happened in their real life, whether it's the woman that I mentioned who avoided that crash or, or hearing from a professional quarterback like Tom Brady, and, um, you know, I think what does differentiate those folks is, you know, they do actually, you know, they do actually 
train and they train regularly. So, um, you know, in that sense, you know, just like in like going to the gym, you know, making sure that you turn it into a habit so that you work enough to change your brain and get benefits out of it. That's, of course, what matters. You know, we, um, you know, we've worked in a fair number of uh, classroom situations. So, for example, um, down in San Diego, there's a network of community colleges that offer uh, Brain HQ literally as an adult education class that you can sign up for and take just the way you might take an astronomy class or a Shakespeare class. And, uh, you know, I've been in classrooms like that, of course, and I've watched, you know, groups of people doing brain exercises. And, you know, always there's a few people who think, um, hey, I just kind of have to sit here and click on the mouse, right? I don't really have to pay attention. It's kind of like taking a pill, right? I just throw it back and forget about it. And, um, you know, we reliably see that, that those people aren't experiencing gains on the brain training exercises um, because, you know, they're not really working. So in that sense, it is a bit harder than a pill. You do have to sit down and, and do it. If you're going to rewire your brain, whether it's learning the trumpet or, or doing, doing brain HQ, you know, you're going to have to pay attention and you're going to have to work at it. And that's, of course, the people where we see the see the biggest changes, typically. Okay. Well, very good. Um, uh, so what would be a, uh, you know, a recommendation? You know, marketing always seems to say, oh, in as little as 15 minutes a day, you can have, you know, you may experience these results. I mean, do you have a recommendation yeah. on how much people should yeah, do you exercises? Know. But the company was getting going, of course, you know, had marketing people here and we were talking as a scientist, we would kick this back and forth. And I remember joking around at the time that, you know, what we really wanted to do was learn while you sleep, right? Just put this brain training program under your pillow and learn while you sleep. But of course, it's really, it's not like that. It's like exercise and learning the piano. And, uh, you know, what I, what I really like to see is uh, I like to see people fit it into their lives. And what I mean by that is that we know that the person who raises their hand and says, I want to do this. And you ask them, well, how are you going to fit it into your life? When are you going to do it? And they'll be, and they say, well, I'll just make time, right? I'm pretty busy, but I'll squeeze it in. I just guarantee you that person's not going to end up doing much brain training and they're probably not going to do much physical exercise either, right? That's just not how any human kind of makes a commitment and achieves it. You know, on the other hand, if I talk to someone and what they say is they look at their schedule and they say, okay, well, on Monday, I'm going to do it at three o'clock, right? After I uh, get off work early on that day. And Tuesday is going to be a busy day. I'm not going to do it Tuesday, but Wednesday, Thursday, I'm going to do it at uh, at 8.30 before I head into work that day. Uh, and those are going to be my three times a week. And I'm going to find 45 minutes a day each time to work that. Well, that's a schedule that, you know, I can see that person's going to set it and achieve it. And so that's that's what we like to see. We like to see people look at their lives and figure out, well, where can I start? You know, in the same way that a doctor might look at a sedentary person and say, hey, the first step is get off the couch, walk around the block, and then let's build on that. You know, that's like what we right. like to see as well. We like to see people look at their schedule, you know, carve out uh, an hour a week, two hours a week uh, in bits of time and uh, and make that. And then we like to see that schedule grow as uh, as, as that kind of habit sits in and, uh, and, uh, and people can build on it. So most important thing is to just start something and then uh, and then build on it. Okay, and are these uh, exercises free, or do you have a, do people get a paid subscription, or what, how does it work? Uh, well, both actually. So anyone can come to brainhq.com and register for free. And uh, when you do that, um, there's a, essentially a, a free trial that goes on forever. It will give you an exercise every day called the Daily Spark. And uh, you can do that exercise. You can see how you perform. You can compare yourself to others. You can work on that exercise and get better at it. 
Um, and that's great. It's a great way to get introduced to see if you can form the habit and make it. Um, and then for people who uh, want to get serious and actually work at it to experience these benefits, they can then subscribe and unlock all the exercises and unlock a personal trainer that essentially gives them the right exercises in the right sequence. And, uh, you know, when we founded the company, um, one of the things that, that Mike Mersnick, the scientist who came up with all this, kept saying is, uh, hey, this needs to be affordable. We need to reach everyone. And so uh, we're doing our best on that front. So subscriptions are uh, uh, $96 a year, which is 8 bucks a month. And, um, wow. and for many people, we think that's pretty affordable. At the same time, you know, I do talk to people every day where, where that outlay is still too much for them. And, uh, and I hear that and respect it. And, uh, you know, as a result, just last year, we launched a fantastic partnership with uh, Demco, which is a company that works with public libraries. And through that partnership, actually, there's more than 150 libraries across the country now where you can check out a full version of Brain HQ uh, electronically from your library's website. And uh, as long as you have a library card, you can go in and do it. And, and of course, that makes it free to many people uh, who uh, might not be able to afford it otherwise. And, uh, and that's great. been just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, to be honest. I, uh, I was the kind of kid who was raised in libraries, like maybe like many a fair number of people. And, uh, you know, the notion that now, uh, you know, 40 years later, we have those libraries and they're now in the 21st century and are able to, you know, offer kind of brain plasticity based brain training the same way I used to check out. Um, <laughs> science fiction books uh, you know it's uh, it's a pretty fantastic evolution to see so uh so we're really pleased by that well very good um you know last question is you've covered it mostly but uh, what's the best way for people to engage and start you know sign up for the exercises if they don't go to the library but if they want to get the subscription you know where do they go and what yeah. do they do to get started so just come to uh com. Register for free. You can try out the exercises. You know, as soon as a person is ready to unlock the whole thing, it's easy to subscribe. You can also go to the App Store and download it. Just look for Brain HQ by searching in the App Store. And, uh, and uh, again, it'll unlock some free exercises. And when a person's ready for the whole thing, they can go ahead and subscribe. So we tried to make it as easy as possible. It's an amazing scientific revolution. Um, but uh, like any good technology company, it's our job to distill all that complex science into something that's uh, easy to find and easy to try and then, uh, and then easy to work with. And um, oh, great, well, Dr. Monk. Yeah. Thank you so much for you know for coming on the podcast, and I really sure. appreciate it. You know, my brain is stimulated just talking to you. But let me check so, these uh, exercises I, out. Yeah. So can I get up on my soapbox and say one last thing? Um, yeah, of course. So, uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, you know, here's a story that I'll tell you that I think illustrates the change that we're going to see around thinking about brain fitness and, and brain function. So uh, you know, my my mom when she was very young. Her mother, my biological grandmother, you know, got sick and went to the doctor. And the doctor said, uh, hey, you have heart problems. So this was back in the 50s. And they didn't really know what was wrong with her heart. They told her to go home and get bed rest. And uh, so she did. And then not too long after that, she passed away. So my mom lost her mother when she was uh, just a pre-teenager. And uh, now we might recognize that what was wrong with my biological grandmother was that she had congestive heart failure. But we didn't know a lot about hearts back then. Now, fast forward. We've had 50 years of research into how the heart works. We understand the molecular mechanisms. We understand the impact of physical exercise, of diet and nutrition. We understand how it works from a physiological perspective. We have molecules, drugs that make it work better. 
So you fast forward that clock 50 years later, and when my own mom started to have a few heart troubles, she went to the hospital. And of course, they had the science, and they figured out immediately what was wrong. And 48 hours later, she got put had a pacemaker put in. And now she comes out to San Francisco and hikes up and down the hills. So that's what scientific progress looks like. We understand the heart. Those problems aren't problems anymore if we can fix them. We're at the earliest days now of that for the brain. We are going to understand over the next one year and two years and five years and 10 years and 50 years. We're going to understand the brain as well as we understand the heart. And in doing so, we're going to be able to do an amazing number of things to improve brain function and fix it. And we're going to look back to this time, like, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, and we're going to think, wow, we were in the dark ages, right? We just let people get old and we didn't have them exercise their brains. We're going to think that was crazy. We had people coming back yeah. from the war with head injuries, and we just told them to get better. We didn't give them a tool to change their brains. That was insane. So we're at the verge of making an incredible amount of progress, and um, really is all going to happen. So it's a super exciting time to be a neuroscientist and a super exciting time to be thinking about um, what we can do this technology. So thanks for the opportunity yeah. to talk with you about it. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.